0: Off the Ball podcast on OTB Sports Radio, Ireland's first and only sports radio station. Off the Ball. This, this is News Talk. Okay, you're welcome back. We're joined by Paul Rouse, Professor of History at UCD, author of Sport in Ireland, a History, and more recently, The Hurlers as well. You're there, Paul. Evening. Good evening, Joe. How are you? Very well. How are you? Yeah,
1: fine. Thank
0: you. So, we are embarking on a semester under Professor Rouse, that's the short version here, that's what we're doing. We're attempting, without being too grand about it, to look at a history of sport, in these parts in particular, but I suppose uh, many of the things that you're going to talk about extend globally.
1: Yes, um, I suppose the the story of the history of sport in Ireland is the story of things that are peculiar to Ireland, uh, things that only happen here or originated here, and then something that is shared across societies across countries across states
0: so you are uh, you we've kind of got 9 10 11 weeks or so various eras various aspects of this and we're going to chart it from the beginnings right through to where we are at the moment that's our plan
1: that is the plan but we've we've something that we have to do before we do that and we have to understand what what the point of what we're doing is because it's not just there is no point in just saying we're going to do tell a lot of stories about sport there has to be a purpose to it and the, any any university course is framed around the question or it has a purpose. And this one, I think, is framed around the modern question of why do we play the sports that we play in the way that we play them? And within that, we can ask um, more precise questions such as, such as why is rugby played in Limerick in the way that it is? Or why is horse racing such a fundamental industry to Ireland? Or why do Gaelic games exist? A series of smaller questions, but they have to be set within but they have to be set within a wider context.
0: Okay, so let's start with the wider context. The whole notion of sport and the idea of play is innate and it's global and it's universal. So, I mean, that that is our starting point that if you just uh, left us all to our own devices all over again and there was no such thing as sport, uh, pretty quickly there'd be sport again.
1: Well, there would be play. The idea of playing is something that's shared across societies, across cultures, across the centuries, the millennia, for every society for which we have any sort of meaningful record, there is evidence of people having played games. What we call sport in the modern sense, though, is something formal and organized through clubs and societies. And that is something that is the product of a more modern period, the last three centuries or so, and in particular, the last 150 years. So while you are playing a sport, you are, that, that idea of play is something that extends for a very long time, but the formal modern organisation of sport is something new.
0: Mm. What is it? I mean, we can, people will have different uh, points of view in this, but what is it that attracts us all to sport and to play and to this outlet in the main?
1: Oh, well, let's just talk about that idea of uh, different points of view for a start. And this really matters. Um, it is one of the fundamental things within a university that there must be dissent, the idea that we should all agree with each other, or uh, that we, we, we disagree. Um, we must disagree about things. Evidence is there to be discussed and analysed, and evidence must be used in every argument. But the idea that we, we need to agree, like when you start writing your essays for this course, um, you, you will present an argument in response to the questions that you're set. And the idea that you need to agree with me or with anybody else is, of course, not a nonsense. You must mm-hmm. must choose your own opinion. But so this and this matters because there are people who absolutely reject sport there are people who have no interest in sport. And it's a really, really hard thing to do, I think, in the modern world. But you can find a way to live without sport and you can move away from it and you can basically ignore its existence. I think, as I say, it's it means not listening to the radio a lot or not listening, not watching television. Or, and staying off social media and doing a lot of those things, but you have to make a conscious effort to live a life without sport. Mm. So then the question, what is the fundamental thing that draws people to sport? And I would argue that the fundamental thing that draws people to sport is the idea of a passion for play. That is to say that people love going, playing games and training for those games. That people love competition. They love the idea of striving to win. And part of all, that people love sociability. It's this idea of the day out around sport. So that extends beyond people who are actually playing the game, but also to people who are watching the game, Mm. whether that is through media or at the event itself.
0: You've looked into this, so like presumably uh, patriotism and our lot are going to beat your lot, be that on just a local level or an international level, has from a very early point just been a part of this whole story.
1: It has. um, It has absolutely been a part of the whole story but before you talk about patriotism and national identity national identity you have to always remember that people project these things onto other people who are successful as being the motivation for why they they did something and often the motivation for something is deeply personal and it is the fact so for example let's look at the case of Larry Flaherty so Larry Flaherty in 1903 won an All-Ireland hurling medal with Cork. He was from the Douglas area, and he began hurling in the late 1890s with a sycamore branch that he had cut from a tree and he used to hit a can with it. Mm. So Larry Flaherty became so good that he represented Cork and won all Ireland with Cork. But he stayed in love with the game, the whole the way through tr- Like In fact, in the 1970s, when he was in his 90s, Larry Flaherty used to watch hurling on telly, and there was a brilliant quote from an interview he gave to the newspapers uh, at the time when he said, he actually, he looked at modern hurling, as in hurling of the 1970s, and didn't like it. He said, to be honest, I don't like uh, watching fellas clearly doing, trying to do things which I sometimes feel I could still do better myself. <laughs> but this is the idea of somebody who, who loves the play. Yes. Now, when you look at Larry Flaherty, it would have been said Larry Flaherty was doing it for Cork he was adding to Cork's luster. Mm. But what point, at what point is that projected onto him by people who wish that to be the case or at what point is it him actually really just, just loving the game?
0: Yeah, that's a very fair point. And if we, if we want to fast forward from Larry Flaherty to a moment, uh, for a moment to the present day, you can still watch Podrick Harrington, who has hit a lot of golf shots in his life, still utterly obsessed with the game in his back garden, uh, recording tips on Twitter just for the sake of it, just because he is absolutely engrossed in the art of how to hit the perfect chip shot and there is a sensory joy in that i suppose i've overlooked one other thing actually in the midst of uh, patriotism or you know our lot can beat your lot and i suppose at its core as well was and this applies i think you know to the current situation as well uh, there was a sociable aspect to this whole uh, thing i mean I think right now, if I could get together with 100 people and watch two raindrops fall down a window, I think I'd be up for that.
1: Yeah, and it's this idea of the day out for the players and for the spectators. Like, there are great examples of this through Irish history and through the history of every society where sport is played. So look, for example, at the Trinity, the first formally modern, modern organisation of athletics in the country was the Trinity College Sports Day, which was held... From the 1850s through the rest of the 19th century in Trinity College, it was an annual event, extending across two days by the late 1870s. And the students were not on their own in this. Twenty thousand people from the city of Dublin crammed into the grounds of College College Park to watch these sports. And the students used it as an occasion to to basically have an awful lot of fun, to get exceptionally drunk, and um, they set fire to the carpenter's shed. Um, when they were, when they were uh, in the 1870s, on a night when they rioted and threw flower bombs at the Lord Lieutenant and all the great and the good who attended the thing. So this idea of a day out extends year after year. There's a player from Glen for example, in the 1910s who was suspended by his club for not turning up for matches for a month, particularly because he was spotted in Glasgow. And he said uh, he didn't choose to go to Glasgow. Uh, he got very drunk and found himself in Glasgow. Mm. This was after a match. So this idea of sociability is something that it need not be in drink but it is also this ritual of going to games with family and friends or this ritual of um, the tradition of going to the same place every time you go to a match or, or a sporting event in wherever it may be.
0: Okay, so there is just the love of playing and playing, there is Larry Flaherty at 90 still very much in love with the game. There is people love competition. There is the sociability. There is the day out aspect uh, to it. I mentioned patriotism a couple of moments ago. That's the fun stuff, you know, the the sociability and and just the joy of actually playing the game. There's more to it, clearly. I mean, we are where we are for various reasons. So talk to us about the other
1: aspects of sport then. Well, patriotism uh, is seen to matter at least because the state pays money for people to represent it. In things like the Olympic Games, it yeah. funds uh, elite sports and representation. So the idea is that it adds luster to a state or to a people to have its competitors uh, um, on, the na- on the international stage, ideally winning on the stage. And if you look at people like Pat O'Callaghan, who won a gold medal in the 1928 um, Olympic Games in the hammer throw, he said when he came home, I'm glad of my victory, not of the victory itself, but for the fact that the world has been shown that Ireland has a flag that Ireland has a national anthem and in fact that we have a nationality so that's 1928 just six or seven years after the establishment of the Irish free state mm. and the fact of the flag being raised at the Olympic games and the anthem being played was seen to be uh, a massive thing and O'Callaghan was one of those believers in this idea of of patriotism he was uh, he when he retained his medal uh, the Olympic cha- the, the hammer throwing championship in in 1932 he did the same thing again he, he in in Los Angeles he he was absolutely thrilled for Ireland yes he didn't go he, he 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 didn't attend the 36 games because there was a split over partition and he viewed the fact that there wasn't a united ireland team entering as being something he was not comfortable with
0: mm.
1: so patriotism really mattered to something to somebody like O'Callaghan, but you have to be really careful when you again say that somebody was winning for patriotic reasons, or even competing for patriotic reasons, and using sport to judge what someone's nationality uh, was. Because, as we know in Irish sport, there were divides between what are called native games and what are co- were called foreign games. Mm. The idea were that there were people who tried to sharpen the divide between the two and they tried to say that you could choose when we well, use Michael Cusack's phrase you could choose between Irish laws for sport and British laws for sport after Cusick founded the Gaelic Athletic Association mm. so politics and national national identity have always been significant within this within the Irish sporting world from in, in the modern period
0: Yes uh, but presumably even within that period uh, some people who were as nationalistic as you could possibly get just quite liked playing foreign games.
1: Oh absolutely and if you look at the reaction to when Ireland beat England for the first time in a rugby match it was in 1887 they'd, they'd lost 12-13 years running and they beat them in, in 1887 and there was a general outpouring of of joy at this and when the Cork players arrived back on the Monday after the game. There was a parade through the city. There were nationalist songs sung. It was seen as being a victory of the Irish over the English. Mm. And I think the words are really well put by Liam O'Callaghan, a historian who's based in in Liverpool, who talked about how um, instead of thinking of, of it as being a divide, people who see it as a divide between um, nationalism, choosing between nationalism, uh, choosing between Irishness and Britishness, there were those. Who saw as no imperative uh, the idea of nationality through sport and who were swayed instead by what they liked doing and by the context in which they, which they did it. That is to say, whichever school they went to or whatever mm. friends they have or whatever job they worked in drew them towards a certain sport and they didn't consider themselves to be lesser Irish people because they played soccer or, or rugby than they played Gaelic games. Mm. And so, uh, yeah.
0: Talk to us about more local things as well, though, Um, like Martin Sheridan's Olympic medals, the story behind that.
1: Oh, yeah, Martin Sheridan. I won't say entirely forgotten to history, but because he won his Olympic medals before the establishment of the Irish Free State and he won them under the flag of America, he's kind of been lost to the Irish sporting story to some extent. Now, there has been amazing work done in Mayo to reclaim that story. But Sheridan, Sheridan lived in New York and was uh, a New York policeman. And after he won a gold medal in in 1908, he came back to uh, Bohol and to various villages around Mayo, and he talked time and again about the honor which he was bringing to Mayo, Mm. and, and to Ireland, and to America. And that was his order of doing things. And he was met at train stations wherever he went. When he was traveling from Dublin, uh, down to uh, down to the west, the train had to pull in at every point where local people, where people had gathered to see him. And then, when he arrived in Mayo, there were marching bands bringing him home so he could eat his dinner in his home place. Mm. There were he had to come out and give multiple addresses the whole way through it, and he was seeing as kind of fulfilling the honour of the little village as much as he was any sort of national or or or, or international function. And it comes again from Charles Kickham's book and uh, Not the Gow, which. Um a really famous book which went to thirty editions in in the um in the nineteenth century alone. It's kind of a, a sentimental or evocative portrait of, of life in rural Ireland whose central character is Matt the Trasher. And Matt the Trasher competes in a way throwing competition against Captain French, who is the son of a local landlord. And in that contest, Matt was kind of staring defeat in in uh, the face until before the last throw. He picked up the hammer, gripped it tightly and shouted for the credit of the little village before mm-hmm. he threw. And this idea of representing a local area is exceptionally strong as well, and remains so.
0: Yes. I know you, Jonathan, you wanted to touch on Clare defeating Leash as well as another example of that.
1: Oh, the, well, this is, this is letters to the newspaper before Clare played Leash in the 1914 All-Ireland Hurling final, where the Clare players had gone for a week to Listu and Varna before the final to do their training. But they were believed not to just be training, but also to be socializing. Huh. In particular, certain women from Clare appeared to be uh, frequenting the area. And um, the advice in the papers were that these guys were going to disgrace Claire unless they just stuck to the training and, and stuck to the hurling. So again, they were seen as being representative of a place, whether they, and they, they were obviously probably proud represent Clare but it's not enough in itself they obviously love the game too so there were competing things going on.
0: Mm. Where does uh, so I mean you've touched on the political angles a little bit and how it doesn't necessarily follow that the Nationalists will only play GEA for instance what about religion and all this you sort of feel like when it comes to Ireland that religion is going to be to the fore in some respects in our conversations over the next couple of weeks I mean the Archbishop or the Bishop uh, throwing in the ball in GAA matches is one of those images that lingers, for instance.
1: It is the great evocative image, sporting image, uh, in a ceremonial sense of sport in the middle of the 20th century in Ireland. And the reality of Irish life for so many centuries was that religion kind of wrapped itself like bindweed around so much of of, of Irish society. And it like a great example, I think, is um, to look at what happened in, in gyms. Mm. So I suppose we like to think that gyms are a modern invention or something that, that is they certainly proliferate now, but two hundred years ago there were gyms in Ireland. And a hundred years ago there were gyms in Ireland, there were gyms in Ireland which were, as one person who frequented them out of Dublin or called John Murphy, said, they are parochial in nature. And what he meant by that was that they would accept, as he said, members only so long as they were of a certain religion. And it was this idea that even in Dublin, uh, uh, that that things were organized around Catholics and Protestants. And when you go to more sharpened divides in Ulster, that those divides were even more pronounced. And this was particularly manifest both in the sports that people chose and in the schools that they went to. And on on top of that, even within certain sports, the clubs that they belonged to. And that mattered, say, for example, in golf, it mattered in soccer and so on. Mm. There were clubs and parts of clubs that were perceived to be associated with a particular religion.
0: Mm. Uh, What about gender then? How are we going to treat this over the next couple of weeks?
1: Uh, you You can't understand the sporting world around us without looking at the role of gender. And you have to look at the idea, the reality, the ongoing truth of the fact that women in the modern sporting world were utterly discriminated against from the beginning. This was a sport was to be male. It was where men were to show all those characteristics, which are so recognizable in all of us of courage and stoicism, of bravery, of gallantry, and women were to watch. And insofar as women were allowed play, it was to be decorative, or they were to be engaged in things. And it it comes down to this, fact and um it's 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 a basic fact that that men walked on the moon before women played football in croke park Mm. that again just a simple fact women only played camogie in the early 20th century in the initial years of the ga there was no suggestion that women would play and gaelic games are way ahead of soccer and rugby in terms of how they made themselves available to women you can see certain sports where women played, but they played differently to men. And the great example, I suppose, is tennis, where constrained dress and playing fewer sets um, than men did, obviously made a difference. Now, what sport also tells you is that, or the the history of sport also tells you, is that it shows you how the emancipation of women changed as time went on. and The rights that women enjoyed as time went on were transformed. They were transformed by the push of women themselves. and But in this, they reflected wider society. So as women moved out of the home and more into the workplace, mm. you see the establishment of more sporting clubs and more diverse sporting clubs for women. And you get the reversal of the underpinning scientific logic from the 19th century, which was that women simply did not have the constitution to play sports. Mm. Therefore, they shouldn't. So science science ultimately undermined that belief but it was widespread for a long time and the legacy of all of this yeah. is that the sporting world is still dominated by men for all that there has been change.
0: Yes I it's something we'll, we'll touch on later on over the coming weeks but I'm just interested even to ask now is it your sense uh, th- you sort of hinted at it in, in your previous answer there but Sport didn't uh, pioneer the women's movement in any great way. It was generally just re- reflected as women, you know, left the home behind and started coming out into the world and demanding uh, equality. That sport followed suit. It wasn't uh, from what I what I can uh, sense of what you've said there. It wasn't that sport was necessarily uh, a vehicle for women to put their case forward, as opposed to in other spheres.
1: It it could be a vehicle, but it was despite men, not because of them. Sure. And if you look, for example, the parody of the sporting female was repeated by men time and again who told jokes in the newspaper. Well, jokes, inverted commas, in the newspaper, such as um, if a woman throws a ball, the great challenge for her is not to hit the target, but to avoid knocking her brains out with her elbow and so on. So these sneers at women were repeated time and again uh, when it comes to reports on on sporting events, but where sport matters is it was used as a venue for protest. So you see, for example, Emily Davidson at the Derby throwing herself in front of the King's horse as part of the mm. suffragette so movement. So that matters, matters number one. And number two, it was a group of women who repeatedly demonstrated the capability of women as sports people, which forced people by sheer virtue of their talents to change their minds about what women were capable of doing. Yeah. All of this is in the distance, and again I, I, irish society sport the idea of sport reflecting society is so obviously clear in in everything that happens here and the fact of it is that if you look at at the spread of the ladies of ladies Gaelic football still called ladies Gaelic football, mm-hmm. it comes from the 1970s onwards so it 's the last fifty years, and this again reflected um changes in in Irish in society rather than sport driving those changes. Yes,
0: okay, understood. Well, well, we'll tease some of that out over the coming weeks at some stage. And then the other kind of really interesting area sport interacts with is our social class. I mean, if you stop anyone and say the rugby team, I like there's this incredibly divisive team. Uh, lots of people really resent them because for lots of people, the Irish rugby team represents a uh, posh, Private school fellows, and they're almost a symbol of social inequality in the country. If you you know you listen to the, the most vehement kind of protestations against uh, the rugby team, but but that that ties into a broader discussion we can have about sport and class and how those two huge aspects have interacted.
1: Well, you have to you start from a couple of positions here, and the first position is that sport is a magnificent vehicle for people to display their wealth. So whether that is people who want to play polo and have a string of horses and travel the world to play their games, that's on um, on on the one hand, a thing that they can obviously do. If you want to have a golf club that is utterly exclusive and where the fees are so high that only a certain group of people can go into it, there you go. If you want to go to what is nominally an open sporting event, but you have a corporate box at that event, that obviously Puts you in a different position than people who are standing on the terrace at the far end of that ground. Mm. So sport is a brilliant way; it offers a brilliant platform for, for people to display what they have, if that's what you 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 choose to uh, you choose to do in that. Now the rugby team is an interesting point, and it's a reminder that when you look at history, and this really matters, that you remember that evidence is everything, and the capacity of people as we see all around us in the world, to take those pieces of evidence that suit their argument and align them behind what they wish to present as fact. Yes. Ignore those facts that are inconvenient. Allows people to say, oh, the rugby team is just this or it is just that. And... It is much more than that now. It is not enough to say that about rugby anymore. There was a time when rugby was cleaved onto itself as a largely school based or only a school based sport for much of the country. But that truth does not hold anymore. Equally, there is a view that the GEA is sport for all at the opposite end of the equation. Well, I challenge people who believe that to be the case, to look at the registration cost and look at the membership cost of a whole range of different clubs around dublin for example and say that that is actually sport for all because mm. it is not as simple as that the reality of all sport is an organized sport is that almost always you need disposable income to play it mm. and you cannot get away from that when you discuss class
0: okay well we'll do that uh, i uh, how early on had people gotten on to the fact that actually playing sport, seriously or otherwise, was really good for your health and maybe even made you look good?
1: Oh yeah, the idea of sport and health is fundamental to how people like to um, or want to talk about sport and want to want to imagine themselves. The idea of the body beautiful is not something, um, it's not something that's just a millennium fad as people might again see it. Look at the way people, sports people, posed for photographs at the end of the 19th century And the early 20th century, it was to have uh, a man standing there with a formidable chest in a tightly fitting top and very tightly fitting tights on him was was seen to be uh, a manifestation of manhood. And it was it was the idea that you would improve your physique. Um, There's a brilliant young historian, Connor Heffernan, who's now working in uh, the University of Texas, who's written um, this amazing study of the gym in the late 19th century and into the 20th century in, in Ireland. And he looked at these fads around the body that people chased after in Ireland all the time. He looked at, say, the sale of chest expanders and of various other instruments that you would buy through mail order mm. and have at home, and you would use them for workouts uh, in, an, in, an, in the idea that you would build muscle around yourself. And they were sold again and again. Do you want to be attractive to women? Do you want to feel good? Do you want to impress your peer group? All of these things are there 100 years ago. Yeah. And people come into Ireland, coming into Ireland and saying, oh, yeah, I can, if you do what I tell you to do, if you follow my plan, you will look amazing. Mm. And, and this idea of, say, for example, there's a man who wrote a letter to a newspaper in, in Cork in the early 19th century when he, he, he said, physical culture and athletics. my twin gods i measure my chest every week i watch the muscles of my arms grow i play rugby football and i row and i run and i throw weights all with the intention of becoming one of the world's greatest athletes (laughs) so you have it all there Mm. you desire to be a sporting god and to look good at the same time
0: well i should say for radio listeners we're talking to paul rouse here uh, via skype and just uh, in the left corner of his picture there there's an ab roller in the background so it was ever thus what about? Um, I love the way that you, I love that you turned around to look. There must be one there. That's the that's the decisive point. Uh, so if we're if we're going to try and tease all this out, and we're talking a couple of hundred years, obviously the role of the state is massive. You know, we have Sport Ireland, we have all of these things now. So when did the state start start getting seriously involved? What influence has it had on sport in this country? These are other things that people will be interested in.
1: Well, the state has always tried to control sport. Even from you look back to the medieval period and the attempts to ban certain games, while at the same time people who were who liked sport, who were the rulers of society, enjoying their own form of games, you look at how the state in the nineteenth century banned sports such as bull baiting and and cockfighting, that did not suit them. All the while they themselves were hunting mm. animals in the countryside. You look then at in the 20th century, and in particular from the 1960s onwards, through the European um, European Economic Community, later the European Union, this idea of sport for all. I mean, the idea of sport for all in Ireland uh, is really something that was driven through meetings that came from Europe. And the idea then that there would be what was called CUSPOR, the original agencies, and um, eventually it grew into Sport Ireland in the end at the end of the, in the 1990s mm. and it works on different levels it's the state trying to number one s- promote a particular image of itself abroad and this is in no particular order mm. but that idea of promoting a particular image of, of the state abroad by supporting its teams and it being an idea that a thriving and successful or at least adequate national team is a badge of national honor and, and of morale so that's how it works on one level On another level, though, it's the idea that sport can fit into the education system, can improve people's health, can work uh, to provide jobs for people all around the place. So it's through that that you understand why the state gives so much money to horse racing Mm -hmm. to keep that industry going fundamentally, why the state has a set number of hours that people are meant to do on a physical education program when they're younger. And the idea that there are walking targets or leisure targets that people should maintain throughout their lives to improve their general health so they keep out of the health system for as long as possible so the state has it has skin in the game so to speak in order to to promote sport on a general level now it does this in in a couple of different ways It it does it through its own agents and then it does it by giving money to sporting organizations and we can discuss the merit of them giving money to sporting organisations. And whether that is simply money for old rubber, you're just paying people to transfer wealth from the wider public to sporting organisations, but it's done for a purpose as well.
0: Yes, okay. I mean, the other point in all of this is that technology has changed everything and, and nothing more than a sport. So we'll have to kind of chart that as well over the coming weeks. Were there any great leaps forward which transformed sport in this country?
1: Well, you couldn't have had a national calendar, a proper national calendar of sport, without the railways. Okay. In the century, as the railways. The arrival of the the railways allowed, say, for example, the All Ireland Football and Hurling Championships to take place. They allowed the first ever uh, IFA Cup, as the FAI Cup was was originally known. It allowed for rugby teams to transfer all around the, the the countryside so they could play each other. But this idea of invention matters even to sporting events, because of course. You can't have a regular series of football matches if you don't have a guaranteed football and this is where the invention of the rubber ball was really important to 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 to, to playing games and even now we see later on how sport is transformed by in the digital age by the arrival of e-sports but even in traditional sports the very fact of whatsapp groups or other phones to contact people to tell them to be at a certain place so that they can train or play a particular game so technology works in a whole load of different ways and of course technology itself creates its own sport so the so ireland uh, 120 years ago was the focal point for some of the great motor races across the world the gordon bennett race from 1903 for example which was a race across kildare Leash in queens county which was the bigger mode biggest motor racing event in the world in 1903 mm. through all the leading from around the world to compete in this in this extraordinary uh, event for which the, the roads of those counties that they raced upon were, were tarmac from, from for the occasion. And certain people, James Joyce, objected to it. Um, Arthur Griffith, the great Irish nationalist leader, objected to it for different reasons. Um, but people came out in their tens of thousands to see car racing around the place. And later, in the 1920s, they came out to see airplane racing take place around Dublin and so on. So technology changes the sports that people are interested in and how people participate with sport.
0: Mm, Okay. So to begin to wrap up, this is really just to kind of kick things off and and touch on some of the themes that we're going to touch on because there's so much in this conversation from, as you said at the outset, why we even like play initially, what sport means, the sociability, uh, the patriotism, how class interacts, uh, gender interacts, uh, the role of the state, technology, all of these things are all uh, muddled together. And here we are today. And I presume none of this was inevitable. This could have gone in lots of different routes uh, for you, for various reasons, but we are where we are. And that is a point I think you do want to wrap up on, that there is uh, nothing inevitable about where we've reached today.
1: There, there's a thing that we can kind of do. You have to think about what history is in the past. History is the story we tell ourselves of the past. And it's very easy to look at the current, at at the way the world is now in terms of sport and imagine that it had to be like this. Mm. But it didn't have to be like this. So, for example, the biggest field game in Ireland in the 1870s and the 1880s was cricket. And cricket remained incredibly strong uh, into the early 1900s until it was pushed to the margins. Mm. So, that's one example of how nothing is inevitable. This could easily have been the case that cricket remained strong in a different scenario if the land war hadn't taken place. And if Irish nationalism hadn't risen the way it had done in in the late nineteenth and and earliest earliest twentieth century. And I think the the point that we have to consider when we look at what's not inevitable, or the whole that the idea that the whole thing isn't inevitable, is that we 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 tend to be too nice on sports sometimes. We people tend to see sport as being inherently a force for good. So the state imagined that it will improve your health or will help you with your education and so on. And people, people love the idea of their kids playing sport, but that's not necessarily the case. Sport can reinforce divides between people Mm. all the way along the thing. Sport can injure your health pretty poorly. Sport can lead to profound depression at, at, failure and people can be made play sport who should never play sport in the first place because they hate it so much and so on Mm. so you have to kind of you have to step outside this idea of sport being necessarily a good thing and look always at the evidence
0: yes and that extends not just to professional level but to amateur level as well you mean
1: and it, it extends all across sport and I think I think what what I would hope to do over the coming weeks is to look at the origins of sport insofar as we have a record and look and tracing that the whole way through from the medieval period uh through to now now we won't stay too long in the medieval or early modern period but they matter because there are things that we can see in that period which shape our modern sporting world now and the story that we tell ourselves of what happened in the medieval world is actually shaped by the present and not by necessarily what we know about the past
0: right okay very good so uh this was week one. This was a, a mapping out the general aim of the whole thing. This is the lecture that everyone missed because it's freshers week and they're off on the tear. So what's in week two? Where are we kicking things
1: off? We're going to talk about um, how the Irish claimed to have inspired the Greeks to uh, invent the Olympic Games. We're going to talk about how the Irish uh, claimed to have invented chess. We will talk about the established, the development of hunting. As the oldest organized sport in the country, and we will talk about we'll talk about hurling or sticking ball games in the medieval period and the evidence that we have for them and then we will talk about that wild morass of popular sports, everything from cockfighting to uh throwing at cocks to um the slippery pole to shin kicking that wild wide world of <laughs> and dancing competitions.
0: Is shin kicking just what it sounds like?
1: It is exactly what it is. <laughs> <laughs> I really was in studio, Joe.
0: Excellent. Okay, shin kicking. Brilliant. That's, I, didn't know will, will, I look forward to it all. Listen, uh, that's great. So we'll do this over the next 8, 9, 10, 11 weeks or so and we'll, we'll plot our way through, Paul. Thanks a million for all that. Thanks a million, Joe. The Off The Ball podcast on otb sports radio ireland's first and only sports radio station